Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks, Kim. Uh, Amen. In case you're wondering if somebody snatched Jonathan's body and took it somewhere else because of the length of that prayer, he did that for my benefit. I asked him, you got to be quick, because we got a lot to talk about this morning, uh, and we got to get to the table. So uh, I, I, that's, that was for my benefit, so thank you, Jonathan, for being kind. Uh, not, not that we think that uh, the sermon is the main thing all the time, but this morning we have a lot to talk about. We're going to begin a series this morning that's going to take us, we're not quite sure how many weeks through the summer, but through most of the summer, on a doctrine in Christian theology that is called union with Christ. Okay, a Christian is a person who is in Christ. That is the biblical terminology. United to him by faith. One with him. Okay, the way a husband and a wife are one, legally, spiritually, and even sexually. Bound to him. Connected organically to him as branches are connected to the vine. That's what we mean by union with Christ. So this morning we're going to start a series talking about the implications of what it means for us to be, as his people, united to him in this way. Now, if you think about all of the ways that, that, that American evangelical Christians talk about becoming a Christian, the way we in the church talk about what it means to become a Christian, we say it in these kinds of we use these languages and these kinds of, of phrases. We say, accept Jesus as your Savior. Or, ask Jesus into your heart. Whatever it might be. But they can all be summed up, and there's a problem with the language, okay? Because biblically, I don't know that it lines up, and there's a way that it can miscommunicate something very important about Christianity. But all of them, you know, this kind of terminology we use can be summed up by this slide. And so, Rob, if you put this slide up here, I've got slides this morning. This is cool. So you see... At the center is me and my life, and then there are all these different components to my life, school and kids' activities and family and friends and whatnot. And then go ahead and press the button, Rob. And then what we do is we just add Jesus or church or religion as just another component of our lives so he's an add-on to the rest of everything I've already got going on in my life. So I ask him into my life. I give him a little part Sunday morning for an hour or whatever, you know, and that's the part in my life that he plays. But biblically... And historically, the church has understood that to become a Christian means not that Jesus comes into your life, but that you come into his. See, so when the Apostle Paul talks about believing in Jesus in the Greek language, he talks about believing into Jesus. 
Faith is believing into Jesus. You change locations. You move out of yourself and your life, and you move into him and his life. So this is illustrated by this next slide. So here's Jesus and his life and his story. Go ahead, Rob. Here I am out here. In believing in him, I believe you know, out of my life and my story and into his life and his story. And look what happens when we press the button here. One more time. So then, see, I come into him. So I move out of whatever was my life, and I move into him and into his life. Does that, does that make sense? See, that's the illustration of what we're going to be talking about this summer. That this is what the Apostle Paul means here in Philippians 3. And we're done with that, Rob. You can go ahead and put that off. That's what the Apostle Paul means here in Philippians 3. When he says that the objective of his life... The number one priority of his life was to gain Christ, verse 8, and be found in him. Paul says that faith unites you to Jesus, and this union with him is something you experience. It's not just an abstract theological concept. There's a spatial dynamic to it. You change locations. You move into him. You subjectively enter into and experience the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So to be in Christ means your whole life, your identity, your self-understanding, your mission, your relationships with other people, all of these things begin to be shaped by his presence and his saving work on your behalf. And the summary doctrinal, doctrinal statement that we want to go back to over and over and over again throughout the summer, okay, as we talk about these things, is just this. Here is the ground level practical application of what we mean by union with Christ. This phrase, what goes for him goes for me. What goes for him goes for me. So in Jesus' death, literally, this, I mean, this is what we're going to be talking about. In Jesus' death, I died. Paul says, I'm crucified. I'm co-crucified with Christ. I was there on the cross with him as he died. He says, in his resurrection, I was raised, Romans 6. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised with him to walk in newness of life. What goes for him goes for me. Jesus is seated in the heavenly places. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are seated there with him. Not one day we're going to be there with him. We are there now, present tense, right now, present spiritual reality. He is the beloved son of the father. And so I am the beloved son also. What goes for him goes for me, see. Jesus went to the cross to rescue me. I have to take up my cross and follow him. He suffered. And because I'm united to him by faith, guess what? Philippians 3.10. Part of the Christian experience is, in some way, I'm going to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. So each week, we're going to look at a different aspect of the story of Jesus and talk about what it means to subjectively enter into it and experience it. And this morning... If you come with me to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see that to be in Christ means that we have a righteousness that is not our own, but that comes through faith in Jesus who lived a perfect life of obedient obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus' life, his record of righteousness, meets one of the most fundamental needs of the human soul. We need a righteousness. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? So three things from Philippians 3 as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning about the righteousness That can be ours by faith in Jesus Christ. Three things. Why we need it. Secondly, how we get it. And then thirdly, what is it? (laughs) It's a righteousness from God. What does that mean? 
And then we're just going to close with a couple of application points about the difference that it can make in your life. But this righteousness, why we need it, how we get it, what is it, and then what difference does it make? Okay, first, let's talk about this, why we need it. Okay, biblically, from a, from a Bible standpoint, the human condition from Genesis chapter 3, we're told there's a story back there in Genesis chapter 3, and in Genesis chapter 3, the first man and the first woman, because of their sin, were told that there was a point in time where they became naked and ashamed and were alienated from God. And this is the basic human condition. C.S. Lewis, in his Weight of Glory, wrote that there is a longing in each of us to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off. He put it this way, he said, quote, There's a longing to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside. This is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. So C.S. Lewis says that we all go through life feeling like outsiders. That's the fundamental reality of our life. There's a door we're looking at, and we want to get into it, but we've only ever seen it from the outside. We all feel like outsiders. And so what we're doing is we're spending our entire life trying to get in. And this is not just middle school, lunchroom, social dynamics. Okay? This is existential reality. This is something going on in the, in the, 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 the center of your, of your heart and life. This is part of the psychological, spiritual dynamics of every human heart. We feel in the depths of our soul that we're on the outside and we spend our entire lives trying to get back in. Trying to fit in with the right group of kids at school. Trying to break into the social circles that are meaningful to us, whatever it might be. And there is, of course, a spiritual reality that explains this. In Genesis chapter 3, this is the Bible's story to explain this. The man and the woman who were first put in the garden at the beginning of human history sinned against God by rebelling against him and doing the very thing he told them not to do. And the result of their sin was he kicked them out of his garden. And at the gate to the garden, he posted angels to guard the way so that they might not come back in. There is a door that we have only seen from the outside that we long to go through. And it's the gate to the Garden of Eden, the door to God and to God's presence. So our, quote-unquote, real situation, as C.S. Lewis put it, is this. We've sinned against God in thought, in word, in deed, by doing what he's commanded, forbidden us to do, and by also failing to do what he's commanded us to do. And for this reason, because every single one of us stands before him condemned as a sinner, he has exiled us. We are alienated from him. We are on the outside. But this passage here in Philippians chapter 3, in particular, speaks to a second spiritual reality that is uh, true of all of our lives. And that is the response that so many of us offer to this reality of, of truly being on the outside, trying to get back in. And it's this failed project of human righteousness. You see, when Adam and Eve woke up to their nakedness in the Garden of Eden, the scripture says that they were ashamed and they tried to sew fig leaves together together to cover their nakedness. Again, okay, if you're not if you're here and you're new to, to Christianity or maybe you're not a Christian, this is not here's what we this is not just a story about two people long ago. This is an explanation of our lives. This is the scripture's way of psychoanalyzing us, of saying, you know, the basic sinful human instinct. The sinful reaction to our sin, you might say, is to try to do for ourselves. Like they did, to try to cover ourselves. We're naked. We need a righteousness. 
And so the sinful approach to this is to try to act apart from God. So the sinful response to our need for a righteousness is to try to provide one for ourselves. And this is what Paul describes here in Philippians 3. Look at verse 4. He says, to put confidence in the flesh. That's his word. He says, if, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. You see, this, this is what we're all after. This is the reason we work so hard. This is the reason why we, we so desperately need the approval of other people, right? This is what we're doing, the fundamental need of the human heart. I know I'm naked and I'm trying to clothe myself in my own righteousness apart from God. I'm trying to find a way to recommend myself to God and others and even myself. So I'm constantly trying to find something that will get me in. Some kind of righteousness that is my own doing. Something that I can boast in, Paul says. And it's this process of putting confidence in the flesh. Trying to work for a righteousness of our own. It's this that Paul is describing here in Philippians chapter 3. Because look there in verse 4. Beginning in verse 4, he begins to give a a list of his credentials. These are the things, these are his boasts. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. That is, he was a true Israelite from birth and not a a convert to Judaism, which made him somehow, you know, a more, more true member of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. In other words, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah were the two tribes out of the 12 that remained faithful to God when the other tribes went apostate. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. In other words, not just an Israelite, but the very best of the Israelites, going beyond everybody else in my commitment to my religion. Keep going with me. As to the law, he says, a Pharisee. And, of course, the Pharisees were known for their religious commitment, for their desire to keep the law. They were highly educated and very moral, very virtuous. They were a good people, you know, a good family, is what Paul's saying. But then look at this phrase. Next. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, I've kept all the rules. I've never, I, I, don't do, I don't do immoral things. You know, the law says give one-tenth of your income away. I meticulously give one-tenth of my income away. The law says, you know, don't commit adultery. I don't commit adultery. Paul says, according to the rules and the regulations of the law, I am without fault. Now, what's he doing? What is this? What's Paul doing? If you look there in your notes, I said, this is Paul's spiritual resume. And you know what a resume is, right? A resume is a list of your accomplishments, of all the great things about you, your skills, your educational background, your experience and qualifications and so forth. It is a list of your merits And the purpose of a resume is to gain you acceptance, right? It's to get you in. It's an argument. It's a case for why you should be accepted, why you should be included, why you should be hired. And so a lot of you high school seniors, you're headed for college in the next couple months. And and a few months ago, you filled out college applications. And a college application is a resume, right? And so what do you do? You, You get these applications, you fill them out, you send your test scores to the schools, you send a transcript of your class grades, you list all of your extracurricular activities and your awards. Why? To get the attention of the admissions committee so that the committee will look at your qualifications and will accept you, they'll let you in. Okay, again, a person who's applying for a job, what do they do? They create a resume. They list their educational qualifications. They list their work experience. 
They list the projects that they've been a part of in the past. It's an argument, okay, for why the company should hire them, why they should let them in. And this is what Paul's doing. See, the sinful response to sin is to live your life trying to earn a righteousness apart from God. And this is what Paul's saying. If anybody ever had reason to boast in the flesh, I did. Look at these things. Look at my spiritual resume. I have to be a friend to you this morning and say, if this is you, it doesn't work. And the reason I know it doesn't work is it didn't work for Adam and Eve. Because in Genesis, God came to them and he looked at their fig leaves and he said, that will never do. And what the story in Genesis says is that God had to provide a sacrifice and by the sacrifice provide skins to cover their nakedness. Because the fig leaves of human effort can never cover uh, our nakedness before the piercing eye of God's holiness. See, all our attempts at earning a righteousness for ourselves apart from God have failed. We need a righteousness from God. And so that's the second thing then. How do we then get the righteousness we need? This is the second point. You see it right here in verse 7. So if you follow along with me, you see Paul says, but, so now he's changing directions, but whatever was to my gain, I count loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And so... The metaphor Paul is working with here is an accounting ledger. He keeps saying, I counted. Paul's doing righteousness math. And so he's saying this, that list of credentials there in verses 4 through 6, that, there was a time where Paul counted those things as gain. They were valuable to him. He took pride in them. He looked at them and there was boast. They made him feel good about himself. They were plus signs on the accounting ledger, Paul says. And then something happened. What Paul thought was getting him closer to righteousness, right? The thing he was relying on in order to get a high score in the righteousness game, he began to see that they were actually a negative and not a positive. What he thought was gain, he says, I actually came to find out was a loss. In other words, the things that I thought were adding up to a positive sum were actually accruing a negative balance. He wasn't getting closer to righteousness, At the end of all of his credentials, after all of his hard work, after all that stuff he listed there in verses 4 through 6, he says, I'm further away from righteousness than I was when I started. And so there's a principle in what we see in Paul here. A principle that I want to share to you that I think for some might be shocking, and that's good. Uh, And it comes, I'm just going to quote a man named John Gershner, who's a theologian in the 20th century. But here's the way he put it. Just this one sentence, he says, The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, but your damnable good works. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, but your damnable good works. I mean, what this passage teaches, what the Bible's saying is that sin is not the main thing that keeps us from God. Human righteousness is. Confidence in the flesh is. You need a righteousness. What keeps you from the righteousness you need is not your moral failures, it's your moral triumphs. It's your spiritual resume, it's your credentials. Now, let me show you this. From the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told a story about people who, and these were his words, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. In other words, they looked down their noses at others. Okay? Did you hear that? People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's Paul in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Trusting in himself that he was righteous. Confident in his flesh, in his moral record. So Jesus says, tells the story. There were two guys. A good guy, who was a Pharisee, and a bad guy, a tax collector. And everybody would have agreed that they were the good guy and the bad guy. They both come to the temple and pray. And the good guy, the Pharisee, has a high, let's say, a very high opinion of himself. He's confident about his moral record, and he starts to pray. And it's actually the worst prayer in recorded history. Because it's not a prayer at all. It's really self-advertisement. He prays, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, or even this Pharisee. I fast twice a week. I tithe. He goes on, I do this. I do that. Now, what's he doing? What is that? He's presenting his spiritual resume. Just like Paul in verses 4 through 6, he's coming to God and he's saying, God, here are my credentials. Here's my righteousness. Here is why you should accept me and let me in. Look, look at all I do for you. Or if you're here and you're not, maybe not a Christian, you're not a religious person, you know, irreligious people do this too. God, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I've not been perfect, but I've done my best. So accept my best, you know, I'm coming to you with my best. But this guy, you know, Jesus is just blowing this whole thing up. He's saying, look, God, look at all the good things I've done for you. Here's my righteousness. Accept me on the basis of this. And then there's the bad guy, the tax collector. And he is the exact opposite of the other. Okay, he knows that he's not righteous. He has no confidence in himself whatsoever that he's righteous. He's so overwhelmed, in fact, by his sin that he stands over in the corner and he won't even look up into heaven. And all he can do, we're told, is to beat his chest and to cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's the irony. Jesus says the guy who knew he wasn't righteous is the one that went home righteous and not the guy who was sure he was righteous to begin with. Did you get that? The good guy was sure he was righteous. The bad guy was sure he wasn't. But it was the second guy, not the first, that went home righteous. Now, what's the point of the story? See, this is where true Christianity is so different from what has passed as Christianity for so long for so many of us. Because, you see, for so long I thought that to become a Christian meant you were a bad person and so you committed to changing and becoming a good person. Because, after all, bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven. And so you're bad, you become a Christian, I'm going to reform my life, I'm going to become a good person. You're irreligious and so you change and you become religious. But in my understanding of things, see, what needed to happen is the tax collector needed to change and become like the Pharisee. That was my working definition of Christianity. And Jesus' parable here, and the parable of the prodigal son, and what Paul's saying here in Philippians 3, completely contradicts that way of thinking. What Paul's trying to get across to us is this, is you can sin by being very bad, but you can also sin by trying to be very good. You can try to live apart from God by being rebellious, or you can also try to live apart from God by being very obedient. And so the spiritual revolution in my own personal life And in the life of the leadership of this church that gave birth to this church was coming to the understanding that both bad people, irreligious people, and good people, religious people, both need to repent of trying to live without God. Right? 
You heard all those amens. It's because this is a fresh spiritual thing that's happening here. Irreligious people need to repent of their sin. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, the message, the call is to repent of your sin and come to Jesus. But if you're here and you're a religious person, the call is repent of your righteousness and come to him. And that's what's happening in Paul's life. See, that was the change here in verses 7 and 8. That list of credentials he was so proud of, that he was so sure had earned him God's love and acceptance, instead of seeing them as something to boast about, Paul came to see, look there, that they were really rubbish. I told Connie and Jonathan, I so badly want to cuss in the sermon on Sunday. And if I ever have had justification for doing it, it would be here. Because that word is a very strong word. It's not a euphem, you know, there's no euphemisms here. Paul is saying... All of that stuff is just dung. Right? It's crap. That's as far as I can go. I'm sorry. You know, the kids are in here today. But if I could be stronger and think I wouldn't lose my job or have people mad at me, I would. Because really the word's stronger than that. That's a, that's a toned down word. Paul is saying it is filthy human excrement. All of my good works. I've lost all things. I've suffered the loss of all things. What things? This list of credentials, I count them as rubbish, Paul says, in order that I might gain Christ. So follow the logic there in verses 8 and 9. How do you gain Christ? How do you become a Christian? You become a Christian when you not only repent of your sins, but you also start repenting of your righteousness. See? You stop looking to your credentials, your good works, to get you back in. You turn away from even them. You stop making them your boast, and you stop putting your confidence in your moral record. Uh, David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Indians in the 18th century and a friend of Jonathan Edwards, he wrote this, and this is just really insightful. He said, when I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, actions, and thought I must be very seriously religious. Though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserved nothing. Listen to this. He says, yet I still harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. I thought that through my repenting and praising and seeking him, I could make good steps towards heaven. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. You hear what he's saying? He's saying he was morally very strict and very committed, very religious. But why? He said it was because I was trying to cover my nakedness. I was trying to heal myself of the shame I felt by becoming a very good person. And here's my concern, okay? And here's why we're still talking about these things. My concern is that in my experience of churches and even churches here in the city of Winter Haven is that our churches are full of people who are building spiritual resumes. They're very good. They're very committed. They're very moral but they're not Christians. They're just religious people trying to cover their nakedness and trying to earn a righteousness for themselves. Because you see, saving faith, saving faith is not coming to God and saying, God, look, I'm a pretty good person. God, I tithe. I do. Saving faith is this. From the words of Isaac Watts, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. Listen, I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. See, David Brainerd was meditating on Isaac Watts. 
I quit the, the secret hope. That somehow I can figure out a way to do something that will get me back. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Or Augustus Topletti in the old hymn, Rock of Ages. This is, this is an illustration of saving faith. This is what saving faith sounds like. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. I die. See, to repent of your righteousness means you stop boasting in your duties. You quit the secret hope of being able to earn a righteousness for yourself through your hard work. There's only one way to gain the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and that is to lose every other hope of righteousness. To gain Christ's righteousness, you have to lose your own righteousness. You have to see your righteous acts as filthy rags, as rubbish, Paul says. That's what makes a person a Christian. A Christian is a person who not only repents of their sin, but also repents of their righteousness. A Christian is a person who, like Paul here in Philippians 3, 3, look at verse 3, is one who glories in Christ Jesus. He's their boast and puts no confidence in the flesh. And our experience here at this church has been... And if you talk to people, the elders of this church, if you talk to people who've been around here for a long time, if you talk to those that were part of the core group that started this church three and a half years ago, this church, Church of the Redeemer in Winter Haven, has been birthed out of a volcanic spiritual eruption that has happened in the hearts of religious people who have come to see that the things they were boasting in were no boast at all and have come to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's my hope for so many more in our city. You see, Paul says his credentials couldn't get him back in. But when he stopped looking to his spiritual resume, when he began to repent not only of his sins, but also of his righteousness, and looked in, instead to God in Christ for righteousness, then he got in. This is what Paul says. Look, he says there's only one way to become an insider and not an outsider. You've got to get into Jesus, because Jesus is on the inside. You've got to be found in him, Paul says, not having a righteousness of your own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. And so the only way to find the righteousness you need is to stop trying to be righteous and to put your whole heart's confidence and hope in Jesus Christ to be righteousness for you, to come to him naked and to have him clothe you, not in the skins of animals, but in the robes of his righteousness. See, this is what happened in Paul's life. Here's the way Paul's working this out for us. He says, Jesus not only died the death we should have died, but he also lived the life we should have lived. He, Jesus, succeeded in every way where we failed. He was obedient at every point where we fall short. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, if you can remember all the way back to Hebrews chapter 4, he says, though he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet he was without sin. Where I lie, he never lied. Where I am guilty of disrespecting those in authority over me, he lived perfectly in submission to his heavenly father and to all the authorities. Where I am selfish and will do whatever it takes to get my own way, Jesus came not to do his own will. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. 
And so if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if your hope for righteousness is not in yourself but in him, this one who lived a perfect life of obedience to the demands of God's law, perfect submission to his heavenly father, then what faith does is this. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, my faith in Jesus makes me part of him. I belong to him. I am in him by faith so that everything that is true of him becomes true of me. His righteousness is my righteousness. God finds you in Jesus. He sees you as he sees Jesus. Okay, remember, what goes for him goes for me. And that means that if you're here and you're a Christian, you're righteous, but not because you're righteous. (laughs) That's, That's cause for amen. It's an alien righteousness, see? It's not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness of another that is given and credited to us. So look there, Ephesians chapter 1, the reason I included this is Paul's got all these amazing things to say about what is ours in the gospel. We are holy and blameless and chosen and beloved and forgiven and adopted as sons. Jonathan got to the end of it and you could feel him almost out of breath. It's because Paul was out of breath because it's the longest run-on sentence in the history of human literature. It's one sentence there. And Paul just can't, all of these things he's saying about what is ours in the gospel, we are redeemed, we're forgiven, we're blessed, we're chosen, we're included, we have an inheritance, all of these things. But if you look more times than he even says the blessings that are ours, he says it's all in him, in him, in him, in him, in him, he keeps saying. And so the message for us is just this, you are righteous. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then I come today to tell you, you are righteous. But not because you're righteous. It's because he's righteous and you're in him. See? If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and your righteousness, then Ephesians 1 says you are holy and blameless. But I know you people, most of you, and I can tell you it's not because you're holy and blameless. Because he's holy and blameless. And you're in him. You're made the beloved son or daughter of God, Paul says. Why? Because he is the eternal son and you're in him. You're in, see? So you're in. You're no longer an outsider. You're no longer excluded. You're an insider because you're in him. What goes for him goes for you. God finds you in Jesus. And so Martin Luther in meditating upon this truth, wrote, so then, have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? And the answer is, no, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Now God sees no sin in us, For in this heavenly righteousness, sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, listen, he says, although I still sin, I don't despair. Because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. Are you, Christian, are you despairing because you sin? Listen to what he says. Although I sin, I don't despair. Because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience. Now, he says, I am indeed a sinner in this life and in my own righteousness, but I have another life, another righteousness, a 
above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God. Do you hear that? Now, I'm out of time. But let me just give you three bullet points to think about, and then let's come to the table together this morning, okay? Three bullet points of application. What difference this makes, then? The only way to get this righteousness from God is to stop being or trying to stop trying to be righteous. But there's an irony. And the irony is just this, and I want to be careful to say this, and it's the more you stop trying to be righteous, the more practically righteous you'll become. Paul goes on in these verses. Okay, he doesn't stop here. He says that being in Christ means experiencing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. In other words, the gospel always leads to, be, to a life of sacrificial love for others. And so don't think that what we're saying, stop being righteous, means you go home and you stop, you know, stop doing everything that would be of spiritual benefit to you. That's ridiculous. But the more you stop trying to be righteous, the more practically righteous you become. And in fact, application number two is that this gospel truth that we're righteous only in Jesus Christ becomes the power source for a life of love. Now think about this. Remember the characterization of those people there in, in Luke 18? Uh, whom Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and he says they treated others with content. And so if you're trying to earn a righteousness for yourself, you'll necessarily be competitive, hypercritical of others in order to prop up your own righteousness, right? But this, but this truth, this gospel truth we're looking at here takes away all pride. Let me be your friend and say, if you look down your nose at people for any reason, if you gossip or criticize others, or if you can't rejoice in the successes of other people, it's a warning light on the dashboard of your life that you're still putting confidence in the flesh for righteousness. And what this does, it sucks all pride out. And sucks all self-concern, right? Remember what Martin Luther says? In this righteousness, I have no fear, no sin, no guilty conscience. And so I'm, it, it allows me, this is the truth of knowing that I'm righteous, but not righteous in myself, righteous in the eyes of God in Christ Jesus that just sucks all self-concern out of my life. So now I'm a person that's free to love, see? And if that's true, then the third application is this leads to a particular philosophy of ministry. And this is why we've not stopped talking about the gospel, nor, I hope, in 50 years will we have stopped talking about the gospel. Because in order to become the kind of husbands who love their wives well, the kind of wives who love their husbands, the kind of parents who love their children, the kind of people who can neighbor people well, the way you become that kind of person is to have the gospel intrude into the deep parts of your heart and life. And so we need to be people who are constantly pointing people back pointing one another back to the reality of the gospel, which is why I'm so grateful uh, that we get to come to this table because this table this morning is just another way of God pointing us back to the truth that we come to him, not saying, here I am, God, I'm a pretty good person. We come to him through the body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for our sins. And so let's pray as we gather around the table this morning. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, I do pray and ask that you give us great spiritual insight this morning about the things we talk about. Help us, unmask for us all of the ways that we are still trusting in our own righteousness, still looking for a way to to make ourselves righteous. Come as we uh, celebrate this meal together and drive from our hearts every hope. Come and help us to despair of ourselves because in despairing of ourselves can we find true joy and true hope and true peace in you. And so use this meal we now celebrate together powerfully in our hearts and our lives. And we pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The promise of the gospel is you come to him with nothing. Come to him with nothing. And he promises to outfit you with everything that you need to go and live. And so that is the promise of this benediction, that as you go, uh, the one who has all power, who is all sufficient, comes into your nothingness and equips you with every good thing that you need to go and to do his will. And so receive the benediction then this morning as those who know they have no confidence in themselves and who desperately need the power and the presence and the favor of God. Here is the promise that he goes with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.